From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaFont. The year 2022 was marked by weather-related disasters around the world. There were record-setting floods in Malaysia and Brazil and West Africa. There was extreme drought in the Horn of Africa. There were heat waves in India, Pakistan, the Arctic, and Antarctic. There were intense wildfires in South America. There were violent storms in Southeast Africa and the Philippines, a huge tropical cyclone in Bangladesh, and hurricanes in North America. Researchers are growing increasingly confident in saying that the likelihood and severity of events like these have been increasing under global warming. And so it's growing easier to quantify the toll that climate change is taking on human health in terms of deaths and injuries related to events like these. But as it turns out, that really just scratches the surface of the health impacts of climate change. Climate change is also already having an impact on heat-related illnesses, respiratory diseases, waterborne illnesses, the transference of diseases from animals to humans, malnutrition, and increasingly, our collective mental health. Of course, these effects aren't as immediately obvious as the death toll from a flood or a fire. But Tariq Bin Marnia says that their combined toll is huge and growing, and so it's time for us to pay attention. Tariq Binmarnia is an associate professor at the University of California at San Diego. And whenever you hear about a research study that connects population health and climate change, there's a good chance that he played a role in that publication. In 2022 alone, he helped co-author 35 papers on subjects ranging from the connections between extreme heat and preterm births, to how precipitation rates impact infectious diseases, to the effect of air quality on dementia. Tariq Binmarnia, welcome. Hi, glad to be here. To start today, I thought maybe we could take a really simple association and demonstrate how the obvious effects aren't the only effects. One of the impacts of global warming is heat waves, and it seems simple enough to say, oh, yeah, well, more heat waves is going to lead to more heat stroke. There are hundreds of heat stroke deaths in the United States a year. But you've pointed out that there are other health effects related to heat that claim tens of thousands of lives. Can you talk about that? So I think when we want to really understand the like entire burden associated with extreme heat in the U.S. and globally in general, it's important to to understand like physiologically what what is happening and how when our body is exposed to extreme heat and the way our body copes with it, all of the consequences it may have. So of course, there is all of the direct impact that everyone can think of in terms of, yeah, like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, that leads to a lot of severe consequences. But when you start thinking about what happens to our body, it's going to just like um, overwhelm the cardiovascular system, is going to lead to a lot of dehydration that may have a lot of consequences on the kidney function, on the respiratory function, etc. And then a lot of other more subtle kind of mechanisms that may lead to some kind of impacts on the brain, on other vital organs. So that that means that when we think about the impact of heat, we also need to think about who is already at risk when there was an extreme heat event. And people with existing comorbidities that took like many, many years or decades to, to develop like diabetes or specific cancer or cardiovascular diseases, they are at higher risk because just this type of 
this function caused by heat may lead to a lot of consequences and lead to yeah, premature death or severe like hospitalization for causes that are not directly attributable to heat because it's it's hard to disentangle the effect. But when you look at the population level, we definitely see an increase in many, many hospitalization for different causes of uh, causes like diabetes, cardiometabolic function, cardiovascular diseases, respiratory diseases, and so on. So this is just just like why when you start like we look at the numbers epidemiologically, we we see huge numbers as compared to the six to seven hundred deaths reported every year by the CDC for the US. And when we talk about heat, this isn't just one simple exposure. One heat wave isn't necessarily the issue. It's increased heat stress over time that matters at the population level and at the individual level for people with these conditions, like you say, like diabetes, respiratory conditions, cardiovascular diseases. And what also matters is what you've called different flavors of heat. Yeah. So it's true that heat is everything but a consistent and one size fits all exposure, because as you said, we can think about what type of heat exposure are experiencing it could be driven by humidity it could be like that could lead to nighttime temperature so will impact people during the night it could be maybe a very long heat wave but so seasonality matters as well we can have extreme heat event like for example in southern california we have santa ana wind event that may lead to extreme heat event in the middle of december or january so the seasonality matters a lot and of course, it also like this concept of compounding impact where you may have an extreme heat event in the middle of an infectious disease outbreak. Could be the flu, could be COVID, could be other type of infectious disease. In, in other contexts, it could be in relation to vector-borne diseases. And that will also exacerbate the impact. So just, yeah, definitively heat is everything but a one-size-fits-all exposure. You mentioned the Santa Ana winds. You were part of research that showed a pretty significant association in how the winds are changing under climate change and concentrations of particulate matter. Yeah, actually, like the links between Santa Ana wind or other types of downslope winds like Diablo winds in Northern California are not super connected with climate change per se, but there is just a bad coincidence that, for example, may lead to the wildfires in California to start and to be more prone to happen when the Santana wind season starts in the fall, like September, October. And that is just like some kind of bad coincidence that lead to, yeah, Santana wind driving a lot of uh, smoke and fine particles, PM2.5, to the coast where most of the population lives. So this is just like a bad coincidence between how climate change is going to influence different types of precipitation and a precipitation regime to lead to more vegetation that will be drought and lead to more wildfires in a fall that just coincide with Santa Ana wind. Unfortunately, this is really a bad coincidence. Hmm. You just mentioned precipitation. I actually want to get back to wildfire in a moment here because a lot of your research has been about that. But I, I do want to jump in right now with this question of precipitation because similar to heat, we can do sort of a similar exercise which with first order versus second and third order uh, results of changes to precipitation. It's it's pretty easy to see that extreme fluctuations in like monsoon rains can lead to deadly flash flooding. But when we combine that with an increase in the duration of the warm season and increased overall temperatures, we get an increase in vector-borne diseases, especially those from mosquitoes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually some 
Okay, so there are two parts in your question. First, yeah, let's start by the vector-borne diseases and specifically the one that are driven by mosquitoes. So some mosquitoes and also the viruses, like we can think the most uh, typically, the one that we can be concerned about in, at least in the US, or would it be about dengue, for example, that impact a lot like Southeast, uh, the Southeast of the US and uh, like a little bit of uh, Southern California. <clears throat> yeah, the, the mosquitoes and the virus really need specific temperature and precipi precipitation condition. And without that, it won't be endemic. So it won't be just like happening and happening again in a similar place. But with climate change, this kind of ideal condition for the mosquito and the virus to survive enough, just to just like to circulate in a population are going to happen and are already happening. So that's one issue in relation to precipitation because we have <clears throat> just like good condition or condition that become more and more ideal for these mosquitoes and the virus to survive enough. But then there is another precipitation issue, which is about how like um, climate change is going to change the viability of and the type of precipitation overall. And this is what we uh, experienced a few weeks ago in California, I think is a perfect example because we have, we have a drought right now in the Western US, but in the middle of a drought, we had floods which is like seems counterintuitive, but that's totally normal. And this is a very good signal or very kind of significant signal of um, climate change because we have on, on one hand less precipitation events, but on the other hand, when we have some precipitation events are extreme and are in, in the Western US are driven by atmospheric rivers, but this kind of, kind of dual phenomena is the worst of both worlds basically because we have like less regular water just to have enough like to kind enough yeah just like to like to deal with a drought issue but on the other hand when we have a lot of precipitation it comes with like very drought soil that will not be able to absorb enough water and anyway that will lead to a lot of <clears throat> kind of uh, cascading effects so i think precipitation is a very good example to show how the like climate change can be very sneaky and complex about how it will impact like population health. Are there any health risks and diseases that might go the other way, like problems that would actually be mitigated? I mean, we don't want to encourage climate change, of course, but if things go one way, perhaps, have you seen in any of your research where you look forward at the climate data, at the, the models and projections and go, oh, that'll create a less hospitable world for certain diseases and health problems? Uh, yeah, actually, one example, like it's probably the easiest example. But again, this is not it's not it's not enough to justify to not do nothing. But I think cold spells and like the impacts associated with extreme cold, like in Northern America and in other places, is reducing because or thanks to climate change somehow because we have less and less we have like with climate change we have a shift in the distribution of um, uh, temperatures and we see less and less cold days. So less and less people are impacted by these cold, extreme cold days in North America, at least. <clears throat> so somehow this is a good news. But <laughs> for my, what I always say about that is that this is not like a kind of, um, uh, it's not because the number of cold related deaths reduces that we, we are good because it's not like an absolute balance with the heat related illnesses. So we still have to address like the increase in heat-related illnesses, and it's it's not balanced by the reduction of cold-related deaths. But this is just like just to give one example about some kind of positive aspect of how climate change impacts the temperature distribution in North America. Yeah, well, 
in North America, one of the big factors in pollution, especially in the western part of the United States, is wildfires, which are, of course, also impacted by climate warming and and have profound impacts on human health. Yeah. So now, just like air pollution used to be in, in the western U.S. used to be a traffic and industrial or in some places agricultural issue problem it's not the case anymore <laughs> nowadays like the vast majority of the air pollution issue we have are related to wildfire smoke and the smoke specifically because something that is important to understand is that we have wildfires and we have a lot of communities that would be directly exposed to the fire that's a big issue but <clears throat> it would be a relatively low number of individuals or communities that will be directly exposed to this issue the kind of the biggest hazards, the biggest threat is really coming from the smoke that can be transported over miles and miles and could go to the coast. And typically, this is what we see in California. All of the smoke going to the coast where the vast majority of the population is living and exposes for days and days, millions and millions of people to high, very high level of like fine particles and pollution, similar to, for example, what we can see in cities like Delhi or Beijing, uh, just because of the smoke. So yeah, that's, that is nowadays the biggest air pollution problem we have in um, in California and the Western U.S. And researchers from your lab have showed that smoke from wildfires is, in some cases, 10 times worse than pollution from other sources, including sources that we've worked really hard over many decades to reduce. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's a, another level of concern is that Everything else being equal for the same dose, the same concentration, the same exposure to PM2.5 and particles that are, this is just particles, aerosols that are small enough to get into the lungs and also get into the circulation system, into the bloodstream. So this is why we look at this specific type of fine particles. And they can be emitted from traffic and other sources of emission, but also by wildfire and can be transported by the smoke. And yeah, they are <laughs> for the same exposure, unfortunately, uh, like the, like the, probability for an individual or for a community to be to go to the hospital because of the smoke is up to 10 times higher. And that can be explained mostly by <clears throat> the temperature at which these fine particles are going to be generated. So when we look at the temperature that a fire is going to have as compared to a, like a car. You have pointed out that a lot of these impacts related to wildfire and population health remain unstudied. It's actually not easy to study this, right? You you need an event, first of all, and then you need to know what the concentration levels are at, you know, points along the way in the trajectory of these uh, smoke clouds. And then you need to have the mechanisms in place to study them where they are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... There are many things we still need to understand about uh, the impact of wildfire. And uh, I would say two main challenges. The first one is, as you said, just just to be able to uh, like properly capture and model the actual exposure that specific individuals will yeah will experience. So we really want to yeah to explore different ways to capture this level of exposure. But the second challenge, which to me is the most important one, is that wildfire used to be a rare, like exceptional event. But we can't say that anymore. This is this is becoming a relatively common exposure. And now we instead of trying to understand wildfire or to try to study wildfire as an exceptional event and try to look at this acute 
an, like exceptional outcomes, like being going to the hospital also for like a huge amount of wildfire for people with asthma, etc. There are communities that are repeatedly exposed to, to wildfires, and we have no idea about the long-term effect of wildfire smoke about in relation to cancer, in relation to cognitive issues, in relation to cardiovascular disease and like trajectories for specific type of conditions. We don't know that at all. It feels like there's a really bitter irony there that right around the time that we were developing the tactics that we needed to study this at an acute level, it turned chronic in many communities. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's, and also there are a lot of um, kind of um, unintended consequences of policies to like in terms of fire management, where prescribed fire used to be a kind of one part of the solution to try to reduce the largest fire to take place, and when like yeah many years ago, like some communities were kind of penalized for implementing. Uh, prescribed fire because it was going above this acute level, these short-term levels of air pollution guidelines. So they they kind of reduced this kind of the implementation of these small prescribed fires that were like kind of ultimately supposed to reduce the largest fire. So there was this kind of uh, irony about trying to (laughs) reduce like like short-term level of air pollution with existing policies that may eventually lead to larger consequences many, many years later. I imagine this must feel both, as a researcher, must feel both frustrating and invigorating. Like you're you're doing research, but the chessboard is consistently moving on you. And so you're having to recreate and re-examine the way that you're asking these questions and seeking the answers. Yeah, but I guess that's uh, that's an in, like a challenge, but that's an interesting change. And I'm about we also see a lot of progress, like, and a lot of, this is like climate and health, just, these connections used to be totally obscure and totally just like not documented, something like that. If you ask this question to anybody like 15 years ago, that was, what? what's the connection? Is, is a link? What are you talking about? Well, now it's well accepted and actually one of the most uh, effective ways to implement different type of climate mitigation strategies, but also adaptation. And there are many effective solutions. So. I'm yeah. I think the challenge is interesting and uh, are important, and I'm I'm I keep optimistic about the fact that we can do a lot of things for all of these issues, wildfire, but also extreme heat. Extreme heat is by far the biggest issue in terms of climate and health in the U.S. But there are many solutions. We just need to 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 see what solutions work, do not work for some communities, and try to take into consideration that this is not random. It's only few communities are going to be hardly impacted. And let's talk about that because you have pointed out, as many researchers have now in this expanding body of research about the effects of climate change on population health, that the communities that are impacted, both in North America and and perhaps especially globally, are not all impacted in the same ways. There are communities that are much more vulnerable to these problems than others. Yeah. Yeah. And... One one way to like comprehensively like think about what makes some communities more vulnerable. This is first like to which extent some communities are going to be systematically exposed or more exposed to some issues. And if we think at a local level, we can think about how like cities have developed and how like the spatial distribution of green spaces, for example, is like is, is exists. 
And this is not random. We will see that in most cities in the US, like the wealthiest neighborhoods have systematically the higher density of green spaces and less micro heat island, so less temperatures. Even when there is an extreme heat day on a given, on a, in a given city, some neighborhoods will be systematically more exposed. So that will be the first component. The second component is about what we can call differential susceptibility, that even like two communities exposed to exact same issue, they may, they may not have the same consequences at all. And what for, for extreme heat, for example, one, one typical reason is a pre-existing, like the prevalence of pre-existing comorbidities because, because of many reasons, like lack of access to healthcare, the type of occupation, median income, et cetera, et cetera. Structural racism. There may be some populations that have ex like existing diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular diseases, and that is everything but random. And that will make this population more susceptible. And a third component is really about how population can be resilient and just after being impacted, just like come back to a relatively normal situation or have the opportunity to take advantage of existing solutions, existing opportunities that are in place. I imagine that someone listening to this discussion might feel stressed just thinking about all the ways in which climate warming is inviting disease into our lives and and the disequity that exists in the both the the prevention and the solutions that brings us to this question of mental health which is maybe an area that's a little closer to you you mentioned earlier how there's been this explosion in in research into climate change and population health but we're still only scratched the surface in this question of climate change and mental health yeah, and that's one of the yeah uh, yeah topics that gets a lot of attention nowadays. And there are many dimensions. This is a very complex topic, and there is everything needs to be done basically. But there are like, of course, the yeah what happens for a community that is repeatedly exposed to I don't know like floods or hurricanes or wildfires. Of course, we can you know, <laughs> there will be a lot of chronic mental health issues in relation to PTSD, in relation to chronic anxiety, et cetera. But then there was also like what happens to people with existing mental health issues, like people living with schizophrenia or people with other like mental health issues. How, yeah, how, for example, they, <laughs> they may react to extreme heat or they may react to existing policies, et cetera. There are many things we have no idea about. And you have also all of the things that I think you were asking about, about this kind of climate eco-anxiety. And we call that, we also call that solastalgia, about this kind of big, just like, yeah, fear and anxiety towards what we're expecting, which is something that as researchers, we systematically and we deal with all the time, just about knowing what, 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 we, what we're expecting. Well, let me, let me ask you about that. On a personal level, you are completely absorbed in these issues. Like I said, 35 papers last year. Is, is it possible to be surrounded in all of this very disconcerting work and not have it impact your own mental health? <laughs> I don't know, but I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I, yeah, I'm, yeah, there are many reasons to be kind of worried because this is a serious, a very, very serious issue. And especially as we discussed before, this is not, yeah, this is not equal. And there are many, many, like, in like, injustice implication and that's something that is kind of um, yeah uh, overwhelming but on the other hand i 
I think this is better to recognize all of these issues as, as best as we can, and also to think about the solution, because just to keep optimistic, there are many solutions that exist, that many possible like things that we can do, and that, that also have a lot of co-benefits, a lot of just like advantages, because if we start thinking about how we can reduce like vulnerability of some communities to have extreme heat, like for example, to try to take care of people living with chronic diseases or people living with mental health conditions, it's obvious that there would be a lot of co-benefits and advantages of that for the society in general, no, not just for extreme heat, but for the society in general. So to me, this is how I keep kind of uh, waking up every morning, just to try to think about all of these like possibilities of implementing adaptation policies that may have a lot of co-benefits for the society uh, in general. That's Tariq Benmarnia. He's an associate professor at the University of California at San Diego, and his prolific work connecting population health and climate change has been recently published in journals including Environmental Research Letters, Environment International, and Environmental Epidemiology. Tariq Benmarnia, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday at 1030 and KCBW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. A special thank you also today to Hawk Mendenhall in Austin, Texas, for his decades of service to public radio and recent gift to our program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.